You're listening to From the Vault, the best of the Beyond Infinity radio show. Where we look back over some of the most interesting science and tech stories we've covered over the years. November 3, 2020 is the date of the next US presidential election. And it'll be a big one. Will Donald Trump get another four years? Or will the Democrats run the White House? America is unfortunately a very divided country and there will be a lot of division exposed through this election and uh, I would venture a lot of disruption and turmoil in the lead up to that election. A lot of frantic campaigning, a lot of possibly underhand tactics used to try to sway the result. But I just thought I'd look back a little bit over the past three and a half years, coming up to four years of the US presidency. That's since Donald Trump was elected. Uh, He was elected against the odds, not expected to win, but he defied the experts and the pundits and became president. So in this podcast, I'm going to go over some of the things that Trump has done uh, since becoming president. I start with a piece recorded in November 2016 about scientists' backlash against Trump's policy on science. And it was um, in particular Richard Dawkins who came out very strongly and spoke against Trump in uh, fairly clear and unsupportive terms. Then I move on to a recurring story of the last few years since Trump was elected. And that has been the possible involvement of Russian hackers in targeting U.S. democracy. The whole idea that he colluded with the Russians in some way, Trump calls this a hoax perpetrated and concocted by his political enemies. Then from June 17 is a story which continues to have big ramifications for the world. And this was the president's rejection of the Paris Agreement on climate change. From February 2018, a story about the doomsday clock, the scientific group that estimates the likelihood of a nuclear disaster on Earth, end of civilization, and the reasons they give for adjusting that clock to two minutes to midnight. I might add that it's actually been adjusted even closer as I speak now in June 2020. The risk of nuclear catastrophe for the planet has never been higher, according to the scientists that set the doomsday clock. Then in February 18, we talked more about Russia's influence in the election of the president. Then from June 2018, a short piece about the Trump White House being accused of breaching data security protocols that apply to the occupants of the White House, the seat of the US administration. And finally, I wrap it up with a piece recorded in December 2018 about the US Senate reporting details of Russia's pro-Trump disinformation campaign. So sit back and consider what's happened in the last 
three and a half, four years in the US and consider what might happen if President Trump is allowed to have a second term. You're listening to Beyond Infinity. Prominent scientists, including Richard Dawkins, who is the author of The God Delusion, have come out and made some quite strong statements against the scientific policies. In particular, there's concern about changes to the approach to addressing climate change. This is with the president-elect Yeah, that's right. And I mean, he's come out, he's been quoted, some of his tweets that he made during the election campaign... There were some pretty wild statements made. Well, he thinks what climate change is just a, a false thing published by or created by the Chinese. Yeah, that's right. He said that his attitude to global warming was the concept of global warming was created by and for the Chinese in order to make US manufacturing non-competitive. That was on November the 6th, 2012, that he tweeted that. The main thrust of the scientific reaction is their concern about where he's leading America from a mm. scientific point of view. Richard Dawkins came out... He's on the Scientific American's Board of Advisors, and they've got several prominent scientists who work for them. He came out and wrote a kind of a, a pretend letter to New Zealand. He said, Dear New Zealand, the two largest nations in the English-speaking world have just suffered catastrophes at the hands of voters. In both cases, the uneducated, anti-intellectual portion of voters. Science in both countries will be hit extremely hard. In one case, by the xenophobically inspired severing of painstakingly built-up relationships with European partners. Talking about Brexit. In the other case, the election of an unqualified, narcissistic, misogynistic, sick joke as a president. Mm. So pretty strong words there from Richard Dawkins. The problem is, the key thing is that people will vote for what matters to them most. And obviously there's a huge economic crisis that are happening for lower to middle income earners. Mm. So their main thing was to vote in someone that said they could, well, his catchphrase was make America great again. So Mm. bring the jobs back to them. But... They're not looking at outside of that and how science can actually then help them, you know, whether that's building robotics or, uh, you know, or there's a wealth of things which we've covered on the program before, which can actually help their daily lives and prove it, maybe earn them an income. But it seems like they're ignoring all that, saying, well, I just need a job. And because of all this, they've been elected this president who's going to make some questionable decisions. Well, this letter that he's written, the Dawkins written this kind of pretend letter to New Zealand, which he's kind of holding up as a, one of the few examples in the world of a, a country which he sees is pretty switched on. He goes on to say, in neither case of, of Brexit or the election of Trump, in neither case is the disaster going to be short-lived. In America, because of the non-retirement rule of the Supreme Court, in Britain, because Brexit is irreversible. There are top scientists in America and Britain talented, creative people desperate to escape the redneck bigotry of their home countries. Dear New Zealand, you're a deeply civilised, small nation with a low population and a pair of beautiful, spacious islands. You care about climate change, the future of the planet, and other scientifically important issues. Why not write to all the Nobel Prize winners in Britain and America? Write to the Fields Medalists, Kyoto and Crawford Prize and International Cosmos Prize winners, the Fellows of the Royal Society, the Elite Scientists of the National Academy of Scientists, the Fellow of the British Academy, and similar bodies in America. Offer them citizenship. 
The contribution that creative intellectuals can make to the prosperity and cultural life of a nation is out of all proportion to their numbers. You could make New Zealand the Athens of the modern world. Yes, dear New Zealand, I know it's an unrealistic, surreal pipe dream, but on the day after the US election, in the year of Brexit, the distinction between the surreal and awful of the real seems to merge in a bad trip from which a pipe dream is the only refuge. Yours, Richard Dawkins, founder and board chairman of the Richard Dawkins Foundation. Mm. Now, I could go on. There's, there's a lot of... of pretty strong reaction but there you have it that's some of the scientific reaction we'll post more details of what people have said in the scientific community and the board of the scientific american of which dawkins is involved he's also a professor at oxford university as i mentioned earlier he's the author of the god delusion and we wait to see because president trump will flip-flop on many decisions like he has throughout his campaign he'll say one thing and then just flat out refuse it even said that So there's been a lot of stuff in the media about how the Russian security services may have deliberately tried to influence the outcome of the US presidential election. Mm -hmm. And the consensus actually from a variety of sources, the CIA, the FBI, cybersecurity firms including CrowdStrike, Fidelis Cybersecurity, Mandiant and ThreatConnect all believe that there were cyber attacks committed by Russian intelligence groups nicknamed Fancy Bear and Cozy Bear to actually influence the outcome of the US federal election and it's believed that there was a clear decision made by Russian intelligence to favour Trump. Mm -hmm. They were able to hack into the campaigns of both Republican and Democrat parties Mm -hmm. in the lead up in the six or seven or eight months leading up to the actual election. And they took private messages from them. Well, that's right. They took private emails. They took stuff that was sensitive and potentially damaging, probably from both sides. But but the stuff that they chose to release was stuff that was damaging to the Democrat side, to Hillary Clinton's campaign to be the next president, the first female president of the US. And they didn't release it directly themselves. They passed it on, That's right. They They left it to WikiLeaks. And that's Julian Assange. He was the founder of that. He's the guy who's holed up in the Ecuadorian embassy, I think, in London. London, He's been in there for several years now. There's pressure on him over earlier leaks going right back to Edward Snowden and even before Before that. So he's kind of a wanted man. Interestingly, Julian Assange actually has denied that the Russians were responsible responsible for the hack where the information was sourced. I guess he doesn't want to give him too much trouble with too many countries. So. Right. He needs somewhere to go. He might have to go and join Snowden in Russia. <laughs> That's right. I guess the really concerning thing about it is in a liberal democracy like the United States, okay, with its foibles, as every country has, I'm not saying that it's a perfect example of a liberal democracy, Mm -hmm. but it is a liberal democracy. Mm -hmm. And for its elections, uh, which are held every four years for the leader of that country, arguably the most powerful country in the world, it's pretty big stuff if that can be influenced and the outcome influenced through the selective release of of sensitive information, which is damaging to one side or the other. Now, the backstory to this, one reason that's been posited as to why the Russians favoured Trump over Hillary Clinton is that there was a personal vendetta when she was the Secretary of State that there were American efforts by intelligence services and so on to foment domestic unrest in Russia. Uh, There were demonstrations between 2011, 2013, that kind of time period against Putin. Trying to overthrow him, was it? Yeah, Yeah, well, it it was disrupting and potentially threatening his power and his position as the leader of Russia. He didn't like that at all. Yeah. 
felt that was meddling in in the domestic affairs and of it his is. country. Yeah. Yep. So one suggestion is that there was a personal vendetta, and this was payback time when Hillary Clinton ran for president. This was the perfect opportunity. Yeah. To Remnants do of the Cold War. Exactly. Very very Cold War esque. Other goals were to undermine public faith in the U.S. democratic process, denigrate Secretary Clinton, as I just mentioned, as a bit of a vendetta there, harm her electability and potential presidency. The U.S. intelligence community further assessed that Putin and the Russian government developed a clear preference for President-elect Trump, and they had their reasons for doing that. It seems that, from what's been revealed in, in recent times, that Trump's quite grateful for the for any assistance the, the Russians yeah. might have, have rendered. But he denied that. The- yeah, that's right. He's been very dismissive of this as a factor in determining the outcome. And in fact, the US authorities that have come out and said, yes, the Russians were behind these hacks, but the hacks did not change the result of the election. Because yeah. they weren't really being asked, it's not their place to make that assessment. They yeah. were just saying, was there a hack? Who was behind the hacks that caused that data to be released? The and Russians. it's too difficult to determine if that was a deciding factor on the outcome. So it may have been, most likely not. It might have influenced people's thoughts you know, in terms of what was in the released in, in the content of the emails and the private messages. I think there was a lot more other social issues and, and many other issues uh, that were deciding factors over the election rather than these leaks that came out of the data that was hacked from the system. Well, yeah. The concerning part was really mm. that uh, Trump wasn't uh, supporting his intelligence agencies. He was backing away and, and suggesting, oh, no, this is this is not correct. I mean, this is the, the leading intelligence agencies in America saying there was a hack and it was by Russia. And then Trump coming and saying, oh, no, I don't think so. And it doesn't didn't believe in that. Now, I believe that's been turned around now. I think he's come out in support. Well, he's, he's been forced to accept the word of his intelligence services and that was something that he was initially quite skeptical about but he's still maintaining that he doesn't believe that that hack or the source of that hack being Russian changed the result of the election mm. so in other words his legitimacy is kind of being questioned by this yeah. so did you receive did your election actually receive a bit of a boost by this hacking selective release of material that was hacked mm-hmm. from from the Democrats side uh, he's saying well I don't accept that there was any benefit to me I won in my own right that's, yeah. that's Trump's position which yeah. is kind of understandable yeah. but he is pretty close to Putin. And in fact, uh, Obama, the uh, the president who's about to finish his, his second four-year term, he's been in for the last eight years, he's actually f- expelled, I think, over 30 Russian diplomats from the United States in response to this, a kind of a tit-for-tat thing. Well, you hacked us, so we're going to kick your diplomats mm-hmm. out. And Putin has actually said, well, I'm not going to do that. I'll wait for the new president-elect Trump to uh, yeah. be sworn in. I think it's January the 20th. He, he takes over as president mm-hmm. of the United States. That's correct. Yeah, inaugurated, yes. He has basically said that I'm going to be magnanimous or I'll be the, the bigger a, a bit person and I'm not going to just do a tit for tat because normally what happens is one side expels some diplomats, the other side reciprocates in kind. Yes. There's a clear view on the Russian side. But it would seem that uh, things are going to change, relations will change when uh, Trump takes over. Yep. And that could be kind of payback for a bit of boost during the election. But what it also highlights is you mentioned the Cold War. Both sides spy and hack and do whatever they can to influence outcomes of elections. They use media outlets, for example, RT, Russia Today. There's another one called Sputnik over in their pro-Russian government-controlled news organisations. And then they spread false information out onto Twitter mm-hmm. and then social media. So untruths can become truths through vast dissipation. That's kind of one of the things that's come out of this as well, the role of social media in influencing even an election of President of the United States. 
You're listening to From the Vault, the best of the Beyond Infinity radio show. Where we look back over some of the most interesting science and tech stories we've covered over the years. President Donald Trump, after meeting with his European counterparts, decided to pull out of the Paris Agreement, which was an agreement where all of the world, bar I think two countries, it was Syria and one other country, I think it was Nicaragua or somewhere. Yeah. Basically, the rest of the world came together and they agreed on setting targets. The aim of them was to try to gradually mitigate the risk of climate change. It was to keep the limit of climate change to a ceiling of two degrees, I think it was, before pre-industrial levels. Yeah. And so what I thought we'd just talk about here was just the reaction that this has got around the world. Mm. And I mean, it it really is flying in the face of uh, very broad consensus that was a real struggle to get in Paris back in December the 12th, 2015, uh, hailed as a a huge triumph of multilateral diplomacy led by Presidents Obama and President Xi from China. There were apparently several key moments when those two vital world powers threw their weight behind the proposals Mm. and, and got it over the line. So a lot of people around, a lot of leaders around the world are really very disappointed in the new administration, the Trump administration's change to this Mm -hmm. and proposals. Now they have said, to give them their due, I will mention that they have said that they are going to renegotiate it. They're not saying that they're going to throw the whole thing out and have nothing to do with it. The US has said they're going to renegotiate it. So there there is some scope for them to to be involved or to have some acceptance of of some of the recommendations Mm -hmm. of Paris, perhaps not all of them. Now we've actually also been in touch with David Caroli, who I believe is on a break at the moment. He's a professor, a climate expert at Mm -hmm. Melbourne University. Mm -hmm. We've had him on the program. We've got some podcasts. You can just do a search on our website for David Corolla and you'll find them. But David was very, very adamant about the need to do some serious things to address climate change Mm. in Australia and around the world. And he was actually one of the people who formulated the written document that came out of the Paris well, the IPCC, I think it was, he was an author of part Yeah, of he was yeah. one of the people who was advising world leaders in, in working towards that Paris Agreement. Just to go through some of examples of you know really loud voices around the world, the Pope, for example, has come yeah. out and said... He had a, a huge document or something, I think he, he handed across to yeah, Trump when he was over that's there. That's right, because they met when he did his European tour earlier in the year. Uh, he's also ignored the CEOs of hundreds of major corporations. Well, Elon uh, Musk ended up walking out of his advisory team because right. they joined as part of an advisory tech team and he said well if my advice is going to go unheard of uh, you're not going to listen to it then I don't need to be part of this team so he's actually left that team some people have argued and said that's not the right way to go he should have stayed on board to at least try and keep in Trump's ear but I support what uh, Musk has done because mm. if Trump's going to go and do his own thing do the opposite of the you know, good advice provided to him yep. there's no need to be part of yep. that team Big Oil for example ExxonMobil uh, ConocoPhillips BP and Shell Total and Stat Oil, the leaders of those companies have all come out and said they support the parents' agreements regardless of what Mm. the US administration decides to do. I mean, the list goes on. China's foreign ministry, a spokesman uh, for them called Liu Kang came out and said, quote, no matter how other countries' policies on climate change... As a responsible, large developing country, China's resolve, aims and policy moves in dealing with climate change will not change. So the largest polluter in the world Mm. saying they're going to stick with the Paris Agreement. There's only Nicaragua and Syria 
out of all of the nations of the world who, who didn't sign on. Yeah, to even the North Paris Korea Agreement. was a, sign, a signatory. To yep, Russia. that's right. A spokesman for the Kremlin came out after the US withdrawal and said President Putin signed this convention in Paris. Russia attaches great significance to it. So even his Russian friends, mm-hmm. who may or may not have helped him get over the line and become president, even they are sticking to it. Well, there was two parts to it from what I could see. On the one hand, we could see that Trump was trying to boost jobs and therefore thought that the coal industry needed more people working in it and this climate agreement was hurting that. On the other hand, he thought that it was bad for America. I've heard a lot of people talk about if if other people are winning, he must be losing. That Not everyone can be winning together. And he <laughs> likes to talk about always winning. By others that have said this is good for the world, then he sees that it must be bad for America and mm. therefore he needs to exit out of, mm. of it. It's an interesting state of mind, isn't it? One of the most telling comments I thought about the US threat to withdraw completely came from the Marshall Islands president, Hilda Heiner, who said a president's job is to protect their citizens, grow the economy and pave the way for huge future generations. Acting on climate change is the best way to do all of this. While we're extremely disappointed to see the United States seeking to roll back its efforts to reduce emissions, we are heartened to see the rest of the world remains firmly committed to the Paris Agreement and to reaping the enormous economic opportunities that come with it. My country's survival depends on every country delivering on the promises they made in Paris. Our own commitment to it will never waver. Pretty strong statements there. The report that I'm referring to was published by the Union of Concerned Scientists in a blog post. And we'll post links to this so you can read it in detail yourself. But they describe this as an abdication of leadership by Trump. So this is an American group of scientists mm. who've got together and come out pretty strongly. And Nicholas Burns, Deputy Secretary of State in the George W. Bush administration, which was another Republican administration like Trump's, he said earlier this year, I think it would be a major mistake, even a historic mistake, to disavow the Paris deal. I can't think of an issue except perhaps NATO, where if the US simply walks away, it would have such a major negative impact on how we are seen. And I just want to say that there was four simple things as part of this agreement. Just everyone's clear. Number one, it was to set up that global goal of keeping the global temperatures uh, from rising above the two degrees centigrade pre-industrial levels. Number two, it did set non-binding agreements for countries, but to reach peak greenhouse gas emissions as soon as possible. So that means that all countries were trying to reach that peak emission and then start decline use. That means using green technologies. Number three, it adds a framework for countries to become more aggressive in reaching these goals over time. So this will be with other countries some kind of emissions trading scheme type scenario or the green technology share and just finally on these sort of simple points here is that it asks the richer countries to help out the poorer countries now Mm. america is a huge global emitter i think it's about 30 percent i think they're second to to china yeah and Mm. and the wealthy nation Mm. so there are very poor nations that are suffering the effects of climate change and all this agreement was trying to do was say well reach peak emissions and why down from there, look to use greener technology and sell that off or make it more affordable. Look at what uh, Tesla's doing, what Elon Musk is doing with you know Solar City and, and those technologies, and then help out the poorer countries so, so that okay, if they if the waters rise and their islands uh, go away, they need to be migrated elsewhere. And this is where they want to lean on on the bigger countries. With America, 
removing themselves from this, they're saying, well, we don't want to do that. We don't want to help in any way. We just want to keep burning. And, and it and, seems yeah. like even though, you know, Trump got in with what seemed like a strong majority at the time, at least in the Electoral College, now they've done some surveys and they've said a majority of Americans say they are worried that climate change will pose a serious risk to their way of life. A recent Quinnipiac University poll found that 62% of people do not support President Trump's policies to roll back action on climate change. And there's actually a lot of mayors that have come out from cities That's across. Right, governors, the, mayors. Uh, mayors. That have said, we'll, we'll continue to do whatever the climate agreement uh, set out to achieve. And whatever Trump's position is, we are going to stick with the agreement and do the, our best to help the world. Yep. This article from the uh, Union of Concerned Scientists really does just list an amazing bunch of high-powered people around the world from all walks of life, whether it's business, church, government or elsewhere, who have all spoken out so strongly mm. against this. It's it's really quite amazing that the US administration would, would be sticking to their guns. As I did say, though, it depends on the detail of this. They've said they want to renegotiate it. So that's kind of quite a broad thing. It's pretty vague at this stage what actual changes will happen. We also know that alternative energy development over there, whether it's solar or wind, they've become big industries mm. which employ a lot of people. So There's the, idea, the idea that yeah. you've got to go back to coal to somehow save jobs, well, th- those jobs have actually been replaced with jobs in in renewable clean technology that doesn't seem to hold water the idea that you know you're saving jobs in the coal industry look the big problem with the agreement itself and i think even professor crowley had mentioned this when we had him in the studio was that uh, it was actually non-binding so you could sign up to it and there was no penalties for not achieving this other than the the global catastrophe of going over that two degrees warming if america had not taken themselves out of it and just done nothing it would have probably been the same effect in a way, it's it's difficult because you want to see action, but they could have just stood back and then just not done anything, and that would have had the same effect of uh, of leaving. The Union of, of Concerned Scientists in America say that while it's deeply unfortunate that President Trump is trying to take the federal government in the opposite direction of the rest of the world, his actions won't cause these leaders to reverse course. If anything, his head-in-the-sand approach is leading many of them to step up even more forcefully on the issue. They go on to describe the the action as misinformed, harmful to the real interests of America and will do real damage to the standing of the US in the world. It will not derail the Paris Agreement, nor should it lessen the commitment of other countries. And that certainly seems to Mm. be the case. A lot of uh, world leaders have come out and said, well, we're not changing our position Mm. on on climate change or on the Paris Agreement one iota Mm. just because America is. You're listening to From the Vault, the best of the Beyond Infinity radio show. Where we look back over some of the most interesting science and tech stories we've covered over the years. There is an organisation called the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. It's a bunch of scientists who basically rate the risk of nuclear warfare and Armageddon on the Earth. They do this using various metrics. They look at it regularly. It's been going since about 1945 or something. I think it has, yeah. It was founded back in 1945 by University of Chicago scientists who'd helped develop the first atomic weapons uh, in the Manhattan Project. The bulletin.org is the web address if you want to have a look at this. And they created the Doomsday Clock a couple of years later, so 1947, using the imagery of the apocalypse, midnight, 12 o'clock, and the contemporary item of nuclear explosion countdown to zero to convey threats to humanity and the planet. The decision to move or to leave in place the minute hand of the doomsday clock is made every year by the Bulletin Science and Security Board in consultation with its board of sponsors, which includes 15 Nobel laureates. 
The clock has become a universally recognised indicator of the world's vulnerability to, to catastrophe from nuclear weapons, climate change and new technologies emerging in other domains. And it's not a single direction. It can go either way. So when times are bad, then it moves closer to midnight, but yep. then times are good, then it can move further away. That's so, right. Yeah. That's right. So they've moved 30 seconds closer to midnight. We're now two minutes to midnight. We were two and a half minutes to midnight a year ago. And that, incidentally, is the closest that uh, this clock has been to nuclear Armageddon since the Second World War. So essentially, since they created this... Exactly. So basically, when they were dropping, when they were actually actively using nuclear mm. weapons in Japan mm-hmm. in an aggressive way. Now, the reasons. So North Korea is first on the list that comes to mind. They say that North Korea's nuclear weapons programs made remarkable progress in 2017, increasing risks to North Korea itself, as well as other countries in the region and the United States. They also say that, quote, hyperbolic rhetoric and provocative actions by both sides, so North Korea and the United States, have increased the possibility of nuclear war by accident or miscalculation. Well, just look at Hawaii recently where they had the testing, which was messages sent out to everyone on the island. They thought that there was a... Incoming was, missile. It was real. Yeah, for they real, thought yep. it was for real. So, yep. in, had someone been had their finger on the trigger to send a rocket back, well, this is where uh, we have devastation, complete mm. devastation. Mm. And apparently, it was absolute pandemonium. I mean, it was it was an error. It was a it was a, a drill or it was a test of uh, an, a public alert mm-hmm. um, system in the event of a of a nuclear attack or a missile coming in. But they weren't actually able to get the message out for, until quite a while had gone by that no this is just a drill yes you know that actually said this is not a drill it said this is not a test yeah, on this, the message yeah, people yeah. were freaking out yeah, people really understandably out. absolutely other areas apart from north korea russian nato and usa relations are also cited as an area where nuclear risks have, have been evident and escalated in 2017 the us and russia remain at odds and continue military exercise along the borders of nato so between eastern europe and russia there is even some thought they're actually upgrading their nuclear arsenals and eschewing arms control negotiations. In the Asia-Pacific regions, tensions are brewing over the South China Sea. China's been building these uh, artificial reefs there and putting in uh, basically military equipment, long airstrips which their air forces can use mm-hmm. and their ships can pull into port. It's uh, a very, very heavily trafficked area for world trade. Mm-hmm. A lot of countries, not just the US, but a lot of neighbouring countries, Japan, Southeast Asian countries, the Philippines, the Vietnam, Indonesia, are quite disturbed mm-hmm. about what's gone on in, in the South China Sea in recent times. That that is cited, that area is cited as a flashpoint and uh, has, has contributed to the decision to move the minute hand to two minutes to midnight, 30 seconds closer than a year ago. South Asia, Pakistan and India are building ever larger arsenals of nuclear weapons in the Middle East. Uncertainty about continued US support for the Iranian nuclear deal, which was brokered by Barack Obama, the previous president of the United States, that adds to a bleak overall picture. I mean, you just have to look at what's happening in Syria and other parts of the Middle East to uh, Libya and uh, Yemen to know that it's a, a pretty unstable and unsafe part of the world. They also cite climate change. Well, well look at South Africa at the moment. Cape Town is going to run out of water in a couple of months. This is a significant issue because, you know, they've got rationing of water. I think they've got two months of water left. Right. And so it'll be the fight for water in, in generations to come. Maybe even within our lifetime, there will be even more cities which uh, are starved of water and none left, at all, you know, droughts. And so this is, look, it's an issue not just from climate change, but it's a growing population using more water as well. But yep. climate change is a significant factor. Yep, yeah, absolutely. Well, and we've talked 
talked about this in their podcast with David Corelli on our website. He's a, he's a climate scientist at uh, Melbourne University and he advised the United Nations on the uh, on that big Paris the IPCC, Accord. Yep. Yeah. And we've got podcasts. If you go to our website, you can look them up under interviews with David Corelli. But he, you know, it came up in the discussion with him that the link between population growth and pressure on climate and environments, mm. you know, the two are kind of inextricably linked. On the climate change front, the bulletin of the atomic scientists are saying that global carbon dioxide emissions have not yet shown the beginnings of the sustained decline towards zero that must occur if ever greater warming is to be avoided. Another area which they talk about is technological change, disrupting democracies around the world. Just have to look at what was done using Facebook and using Mm -hmm. some social media platforms to uh, feed out fake news, Mm -hmm. to hack into databases of both sides. Influence from foreign parties. Yep, yep. It's a pretty hot issue, and it's what's being investigated by uh, by Mueller over in America. The uh, the special uh, investigation into whether the Trump administration, whether President Trump actually directly benefited and even possibly knowingly benefited from Russian interference in that election. The bulletin says that uh, technological change is disrupting democracies around the world as states seek and exploit opportunities to use information technologies as weapons, among them internet-based deception campaigns aimed at undermining elections and popular confidence in institutions essential to free thought and global security. Zeroing in more on Closer to Home, the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, and the website is thebulletin.org. They say, quote, a, a breakdown in the international order that has been dangerously exacerbated by recent US actions has occurred. In 2017, the United States backed away from its long-standing leadership role in the world, reducing its commitment to seek common ground and undermining the overall effort towards solving pressing global governance challenges. Neither allies nor adversaries have been able to reliably predict US actions or understand when US pronouncements are real and when they are mere rhetoric. And we know exactly what they're talking about with that, the old Twitter button that Pottis seems to have his hand on pretty regularly. Disturbing stuff there from the bulletin of the atomic scientists, that doomsday clock being set to two minutes to midnight, 30 seconds closer than a year ago, and the closest it's been to midnight being nuclear Armageddon Mm -hmm. since World War II. On the program, we've covered surveillance. We covered the WikiLeaks story from a few years ago when Edward Snowden spilled the beans on this massive surveillance thing that was going on, the NSA and uh, CIA and uh, other American intelligence bodies were basically spying on the world and it had lots of lots of implications about the potential misuse and how a smartphone in everyone's pocket it has purposes as a smartphone and as a mobile email, internet, all that sort of great stuff that it does. But it also allows you to be monitored and and it has security implications and privacy implications as well. Then back in 2014, it was just after the Sochi Games that the Russians started some pretty provocative stuff in Ukraine. And and there's arguments on both sides about who was really responsible for that and whether Russia was to blame or whether it was the Ukraine side. But uh, there was certainly tension there and there still is there to this day. In response to that, America introduced some pretty stiff penalties and sanctions on Russian companies, on Russia doing business in Europe. That was while Obama was... uh, Yeah, this is is right when the previous president was in there. But it was was in response to what was seen as bad actions and, uh, you know, the annexing of the Crimea, that sort of Mm -hmm. stuff was seen as pretty aggressive. So the sanctions were in response to that. 
In that same year, Russia dispatched, and this is according to the US Special Counsel Robert Mueller, who is investigating possible collusion between the, the Trump administration and Russia in getting this unlikely candidate, Donald Trump, into the White House. There is an ongoing investigation with uh, the US Special Counsel into that. He has just come out and charged 13 Russians and three organizations, including the Internet Research Agency, which is actually based in St. Petersburg in Russia, with alleged interference in the 2016 presidential election. Mm-hmm. These 13 Russians are not on American soil at the moment. No, there is a question about what's going to happen. So even if these things stick and there's proof and it goes through the courts and we say, yes, these people are guilty, there's no extradition treaty between Russia and America. And how do you get these people to actually front up? They're unlikely to just volunteer. Oh, yeah, Yeah. I'll come back and you can put me in jail. Their travels may be restricted, though, because if they land in a country that does have a treaty with America, Mm. they could then be shipped into America. That's right. So they'll be on on a watch list and, and they'll find themselves on Interpol's wanted list or something equivalent to that. But it was just interesting. I thought the timing of this was interesting because in response to those those sanctions, which are still a sore point in relations between Russia and America and Europe as well, because there's other countries, not just the US, that's imposing those sanctions. Mm-hmm. It's a coordinated effort. It has damaged the Russian economy and has caused ongoing implications for the Russian economy. So they're not very happy about it. And the same year that they were in Ukraine, in Crimea, and they had these, these sanctions in response to that, they also send a team over to work on on influencing the outcome of the US election. So, so they went to America to They influence. went to America. Yeah. They sent Russians over to America. They stole Americans' identities mm-hmm. so that they could act, they could do certain things, they could do posts on the internet. They used VPNs. They were very smart, technologically advanced, well-funded, and spent in the, I think this whole effort, you know, we're talking millions of dollars mm-hmm. spent to influence, to sow discord and to possibly influence the outcome of the US election. They used social media, heavily Facebook, and Instagram, but Facebook in particular. And they took advantage of the very tools that advertisers have, mm-hmm. the benefit offered and why it's a successful business is because it's a powerful medium. It, it glues people to their feeds. It's yep. so alluring that it's it's powerful for advertising. And that's really the business model of, of Facebook. They were able to use those tools to target certain areas of the US which were known to be so-called purple states, such as Colorado, Virginia, and Florida, where the electoral gap between Republicans and Democrats was slim. Mm-hmm. And you can see some of these ads. There. There's a picture of the devil, you know, with horns and, and you know, horrible face, teeth and claws, and Jesus, and they're arm wrestling. And one side is clearly supposed to be Clinton, Hillary Clinton, mm-hmm. and the other side is supposed to be, it's kind of unnamed, but it was, it was the opposition. If, yep. it's, if it's so, a lot of them were just hammering Clinton and the Democrats. What's the alternative? It's Trump. Because I've heard some analysis being that the Russians expected that the Clinton administration would have been much harder on Russia in terms of, in terms of sanctions. Right, right. But the other part of it is that Russia's aim is to try and disrupt America and divide America yep. because America that is divided is more worried about internal politics and yes. what's going on there rather than focusing on what's happening with Russia. And yep. it kind of allows Russia a little bit more freedom to act up and, and do what they want to do. Whereas if Clinton had one and then there was sanctions on them then they wouldn't have necessarily the freedom that they want and they expect that's right and so not necessarily deserved but uh, it's one way of, for them i think putin's directive potentially from the analysis that i've read is that he sees that uh, an america in trouble is a good thing for russia well it makes them more inward looking so having a president who is potentially isolationist who's got very little international experience as a politician mm-hmm. in fact none mm-hmm. who 
some would say is certainly idiosyncratic in his behaviour. He's flouted a lot of conventions that most presidents and White House administrations in the past, probably all, have taken as protocols and norms of behaviour. Mm-hmm. He jumps on his own Twitter account and, and fires off all sorts of stuff. He uses expletives in meetings. Mm-hmm. His whole country. He's, ad- he's anti-immigration. Yeah. He, he's put America first. All these things are disruptive. They're isolationist. One of Trump's stated aims, I think even before he was elected, was to make America's allies pay for their defense more. Now, Mm. America's heavily involved in NATO. NATO is facing off along the the border of Eastern Europe with Russia. Mm -hmm. So divide that country, divide it from its allies, divide it within itself. There are benefits that could flow from that to Russia. Make Mexico pay for the wall, for example, was a big cry that still continues to this day. He's even threatening NAFTA, which is the North American Free Trade Agreement, which has been there for years, partly because of Mexico's role, but it also affects Canada. I think he said that uh, Germany owed money to NATO or something like that, which is untrue or Mm. hasn't been proven at this stage. Mm. He has created division, not just amongst his... uh, own population, his own people, uh, he's created that division amongst the world. And I think looking from Australia, there are some people that say he's doing a a great job, but I would say that the majority of people are looking at a lot of cringe and in horror. Just quoting from the New York Times, they spoke to Jonathan Albright, research director at Columbia University, that's in New York, the Tau Center for Digital Journalism. He said that the indictment laid bare how effectively Facebook could be turned against the country. So that's the indictment of that bunch of Russian people who have been uh, charged with interfering with the election, a kind of conspiracy to uh, interfere with a US election. Quoting Jonathan Albright, Facebook built incredibly effective tools which let Russia profile citizens here in the US and figure out how to manipulate us. Facebook essentially gave them everything they needed. And he went on to say that many of the tools that the Russians used, including those that allow ads to be targeted and that show how widespread an ad becomes still pervade Facebook. So the the worry is this year there's midterm elections mm-hmm. in the US. This is where the same sort of vulnerabilities could be exploited again. Yeah. So this is one but of the things. There's also a bigger question around not only um, you know elections, but if you're looking for a, a business case, for example, I'm sure this is actually going on where a business is creating these profiles to try and influence people to make them believe in a certain thing, which may be uh, false and may be incorrect. But as long as they get people on board to believe what they want them to believe they can sell more things or they can join up to a cause which might be illegitimate or it might be a problem but does benefit that particular business yep one of the things that's been suggested is that when television first was introduced in america it actually became and that was you know the, the sort of first really powerful mass media you know multi mm. uh, radio was huge yeah radio was huge yeah. before that but the power of television combining vision with yeah. audio you yeah. know and then adding color to that was you know really a way of, of reaching out and, and uniting people as mm-hmm. it turned out whereas facebook now actually because of its ability to target on a, such a granular level mm-hmm. it's kind of the next wave of mass media or part of the the, mm-hmm. the, the, the latest wave of, of 21st century mass media throughout the world and in america and yet the suggestion is that it, this is really something that divides people rather than unites yeah. them. And that's one of the big criticisms of Facebook. Might be a reason why people are starting to get a little bit over that platform. Facebook, when they was confronted about how their advertising platforms have been used by Russian actors to influence the outcome of the last US election, they originally denied it. But then by last September, Facebook had disclosed that the Internet Research Agency, that, that uh, shadowy organization based in St. Petersburg in Russia, had bought divisive ads on hot button issues through their company. 
And they had actually uh, released some of those advertising. Um, you can see them, yeah. yeah. You can see them for yourself. We'll post some on, on our website, beyondinfinity.com.au. Apparently 150 Americans had seen the Russian propaganda ads on the social network and on Instagram. The other thing they did was they even organized rallies. So mm. Russian people posed as Americans to organize rallies in New York, in uh, various parts of the United States. They were clever about how they did this. So some of the ads might have been directed at African Americans. In their case... It was more along the lines of you've got so little chance of having a say that you might as well not vote. Mm. So they knew that they were potentially going to be anti-Trump. The African-American vote was was potentially anti-Trump. So the way that they dealt with them was just discourage them from even voting. Mm. It was a multi-pronged attack using all sorts of different angles, focusing on, on divisive issues, whether it was immigration, whether it was racial tensions that were simmering anyway, whether it was... ISIS, I think, was... Yeah, a, yeah. It, was, it, was, it was on, on terrorism, yep. suggesting that Democrats were soft on terrorism. Healthcare, and, and, which and, was a big one as well. And, yeah. and, and portraying uh, Hillary Clinton as the devil. They even paid to, to set up a full-size cage with a paid actor in it and this was to to physically represent hillary clinton in jail because remember one of the things that trump kept saying was lock her up put her in jail if i become president i'll put her in prison now he went back on that like a lot of things he backflipped these indictments do not say that trump and his administration directly worked with colluded with the russians but they were certainly beneficiaries of this because the russians were clearly trying to denigrate clinton denigrate the democrats denigrate the record of Obama, mm-hmm. given that it's a sort of a, it's a two-horse race, that was clearly playing to the benefit of Trump and his administration. Yeah. So whether Trump knew is a, a separate issue that has not been dealt with these indictments. These indictments really are a, a possibly an opening salvo in proving that collusion did exist. And I would have thought if it was proved that Trump knowingly benefited and, and colluded with the Russians on this effort to make him president, that would be an impeachable offence. That would result in him being kicked well, out, well, which doesn't happen very often. Well, Republican party majority at the moment uh, probably not but probably looking later the year at the midterms there is uh, potentially a change to a democratic majority that's a big if that could uh, lead to the impeachment process at that stage they used this internet research agency created back in 2014 in st petersburg employed about 80 people it was given the job of interfering with elections and political processes the group began using american social media to achieve those aims in 2014 they stole the identities of real americans to create fake personas and fake accounts on social media they then used those stolen identities to populate and promote facebook pages like united muslims of america blacktivist and secured borders and interestingly enough these are all themes that have been heavily embraced by the trump administration They even used stolen PayPal accounts to pay for the ads on Facebook and to promote posts, spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on the outreach. At every step, the Russians used Facebook's own tools to make sure their propaganda was as effective as possible. So the conclusion of this New York Times article is that the public needs to be more vigilant about what is real and what is not online the vulnerabilities which made this possible for this interference in American politics need to be addressed in time for the midterm elections. Mm -hmm. And I guess governments around the world, democracies around the world, need to be pretty wary of this kind of interference. There is still some resistance from Facebook to accept full responsibility. I believe that they are still refusing to release company information on the Russian campaign involved in the last US election. You're listening to Beyond Infinity. Thanks for listening. Remember to visit our program website, beyondinfinity.com.au, where you'll find our complete back catalogue of over 600 podcasts. 
That's beyondinfinity.com.au. Back in June 2016, in the uh, that tumultuous US election campaign that seemed to sort of rewrite all the rules on, on what can be done by uh, presidential candidates, in particular Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton's emails. It was a controversy because apparently she had a server for email that was actually uh, not in her office mm-hmm. in Washington, but actually at a private house, I think in the in the basement or a private house or the cellar. It raised eyebrows. Was this for, for some kind of uh, nefarious well, the, use or was it insecure? What was the reason why The she argument did this? being that they use it, the Clintons use it for their own personal use or the Clinton Foundation and mm. nothing to do with government work. She was Secretary of the State at the time mm. and she argued that no, there was none of this personal stuff, mm. but that has to be tested through the FBI and mm. they did take the, the servers and they found uh, you know no information. However, that didn't stop political attacks. Yeah, so Donald Trump said her server was easily hacked by foreign governments, perhaps even by her financial backers in communist China, putting all of America and our citizens in danger, great danger. But it turns out when it comes to cyber security, Donald Trump's invective against his opponent, Hillary Clinton, is perhaps a little bit misdirected. It turns out that uh, Trump's inner circle may have breached US federal uh, record-keeping laws by using disappearing message services like Confide. Mm. So this is where you can actually, and I think this is a publicly available uh, app that you can download, and it basically allows you to send a text message or equivalent of a text message to someone and they get to read it and then it disappears Mm -hmm. without a trace. And it's encrypted, so it's a very secure, well, supposedly secure form of communication. The thing about that is it actually breaches the record-keeping laws that apply to US presidents. Mm. So that was one issue. And another that's come out recently is that several in the White House, including Trump, have also used private email devices, i.e. phones that are not part of the government Mm -hmm. kit that you get handed, like this is a secure phone, use this, use this email service because we've made it secure, we've tried to make it secure. Several were using just private email devices and unsecured Wi-Fi for supposedly secret government communication, including John Kelly, who is now the chief of staff, I believe, but he was the Secretary of Homeland Security while he was Homeland Security Secretary in that very sensitive anti-terrorist portfolio in America, he was also apparently using a private phone that wasn't secured. Which was reportedly compromised for months while he served as the Secretary of Homeland Security. Right. So this... God knows what information was leaked then. Yeah. The other thing is that apparently old Trumpy in his various properties around the States, whether it's down at in Florida at his golf course and mm-hmm. the... the pad down there or elsewhere he just hooks into his wi-fi networks and, and he hasn't even bothered to secure them <laughs> okay, so you, right. just, you just click on and like going to mcdonald's or something it is it's interesting about the uh, the record keeping i've been well aware of this for years it's about anything that's recorded is government property there's also actually been a court case recently about who can see or who can access certain data mm. and this relates to trump's love for twitter now he has been blocking a lot of people that mm. maybe disagree with him or yep. uh, argue back against his points right and this was taken to court and basically the judges have ruled that due to him being the president then he does not have the right to block right. that person yep you know american citizens should have access to the the president of course and they should the information that the president and just puts because out. the president doesn't like you giving him some flack over Twitter in a, exactly. in a public forum, that doesn't mean that he can shut you down and, and deny you access to his communications from there on. So it's it's easy for them to say, oh, look over there and, uh, you know, they, they used insecure you know, servers and they had, were compromised. Yet uh, on the surface of it at this stage, it looks like they're not really abiding by what they held as the yardstick, essentially. 
some of his uh, either current or, or former advisors and sort of inner circle, including Steve Bannon, Gary Cohn, Jared Kushner and uh, Rince Priebus, all occasionally relied on private email and electronic devices to conduct government business. So a little bit of hypocrisy there, given that invective against his opposition while he was throwing everything at her to become president and beat her in those debates. Well, look, you know, a lot of the things we've seen that they've pointed the finger at, it's, um, isn't it that old saying, like you point one finger and then you've got three or four pointing back at you when you yeah. you're in yeah, your hand? Yeah. Perhaps it is a, a witch hunt and a media beat up, but uh, if some of it is going to stick, it's, pre- it's pretty bad, pretty damning, you know, what has been done by this Trump administration. Apparently, yeah. unlike Barack Obama's White House issued cell phones when he was in, in charge of the States when he was president, Trump's call-enabled iPhone has a camera and microphone increasing the risk that could be used to hack and monitor the president. Mm. You're listening to Beyond Infinity. So Donald Trump has had a pretty wild year. Uh, he's had his lawyers put in jail uh, he's had to uh, admit, or not really admit, but other people admitted for him various mm. uh, crimes and misdemeanors along the way. Yes. And it will be very interesting to see whether he gets re-elected for a second term. I think there would be plenty of people who would be betting against that now. I think but, it's uh, even discussion about if he'll complete his first term. Yeah, though, well, yeah. look, that could be another thing as well, even avoiding the possibility of impeachment. We have talked about Donald Trump quite a bit. We've talked about, in particular, the efforts of the Russians to actually put him in place. Mm. Looks like there was a, a very clear strategy involving the use of social media to persuade segments. They broke down, they analysed American politics and the way people voted, people on the conservative side and people on the left side of politics in America, and they targeted them with uh, ads via social media in a very organised way, really ramping up in 2014. And this apparently, the first time that the Russians had got involved in using social media to, uh, to influence voters or influence popular opinion was actually in Russia from about 2009. Yeah, right. So they sort of practiced, they they honed their skills there, even though many people would argue that uh, Russia is not really a true valid democracy it does have a vote but it seems to be kind of a rubber stamp process rather than an actual you know a genuine democracy and, and those that speak out against the leading party tend to uh, be, be silenced that's right they, opposition uh, people get late go get, missing get poisoned yeah, yeah. They, they yeah they get a bit of radiation they go missing they get locked up they get silenced they get uh, deregistered uh, they get banned from assembly all mm. sorts of things happen to people who work against the authorities there but the story today is really just more about the influence campaign conducted through social media to put good old Donald Trump uh, in the White House hot seat in the Oval Office, President of the United States. Clearly, they liked the policies that he had. They thought well, they, were, they, they were more... Like they disliked Hillary Clinton. So much. So much because mm. she had said that she was con- going to continue the sanctions on Russia mm. and the Republican Party were going to uh, you know, relax the sanctions, particularly Donald Trump. So I mm. think for them, that was part of you know the huge push to have him elected. So Oxford University's Computational Propaganda Project and Graphica, which is a network analysis firm, they have provided new details of how the Russians worked at the Internet Research Agency, which is the organisation that ha- that coordinated and centralised all this, uh, this this disinformation campaign, this propaganda campaign that uh, targeted Americans and, and targeted the way they vote, 
with a view to either uh, putting people who are in kind of in opposition on the on the left or liberal side of of US politics. The left side of politics were discouraged from voting mm-hmm. through uh, a targeted social media campaign, or just fed confusing messages which sort of made them think, okay, well, there's no point in me getting involved. Whereas the conservative side of politics, which was more likely to favour Trump getting elected anyway, they were targeted yes. through through Facebook and Instagram in particular, but also through other social media as well, uh, including online uh, mail. Instagram was huge, yeah, I believe. Instagram yep. was huge. That's, that's, that's owned by Facebook. Google's Gmail was targeted. Microsoft Hotmail service was targeted. Pinterest, Tumblr, Google Plus were all sort mm. of lesser known social platforms. But the big ones that were targeted were Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Those were the big three. They had targeted ads, which, as I said, did things like sapped the political clout of left-leaning African-American voters by undermining their faith in elections and spreading misleading information about how to vote. I did hear some numbers that it was around about 100,000, sorry, 100 million people had seen one of the propaganda ads that were created by the Russians. Mm. But it is very difficult to know what kind of influence it had. I mean, you can't, you know, run an alternate campaign now and then, you know, take that out and say, oh, here's the baseline and here's how much of an influence it had. But you know, on the face of it, it did have um, some results, and you wouldn't—they wouldn't put that much time and effort and resources into doing this if they didn't expect to have uh, some kind of result. And what's also interesting is I had—I've uh, seen uh, reports and read reports that they were so brazen with their attempts when they did it through Facebook that mm. they actually paid in rubles. Yes, they didn't even attempt to hide that through uh, you know That's VPNs, right. and they even gave contact numbers and stuff in Russia. Yeah. so so there was some sloppiness. If people had been onto it, if they, if these platforms had been onto it, yeah. which clearly they weren't mm. at all, then uh, this could have been picked up earlier and even prevented. Yeah. But that, I think there's even campaigns, and I've heard of recently, where you know Facebook have come out and they've said, oh, "We're doing everything we can now to prevent this kind of uh, you know foreign influence in in elections, etc." Uh, but there have been some tests done. To- and ads, which are propaganda ads uh, by foreign powers, have been you know gone through the the Facebook approvals process and been approved and shown. I think that was even for the the most recent midterm campaign. So uh, it's not fixed. Uh, how do you fix something which is a global? You know there are little restrictions unless you're from China, for example, and they've got a closed, essentially a closed internet. Mm. So how do you manage uh, this kind of thing um, in, in future? And we're talking hundreds of millions of likes that were garnered by these things. So they were very well targeted, and they were persistent, and they were subtle, and they used you know they used graphic images to attract people. You know, like uh, the the devil arm wrestling mm. with Jesus to sort of appeal to the Bible Belt of, of America, that conservative Republican Tea Party side of politics and it was effective really what it showed was that all this information that was being gathered about populations around the world not just in in america but you know social media provided granular information Mm. about people about their habits about their demographics about their socioeconomic status their employment the type of family they had where they lived all this sort of stuff their hobbies everything that's up there for the world to see on social media was used in a smart targeted way and it had an effect. As I said, there were hundreds of millions of likes that were garnered. We're not talking about a minor result. We're talking about a really big result. And it's, I guess I would just say two things very quickly. One is with all of this that has been going on, mm. it fits into a narrative of your own echo chamber, for example. So you might be, you might be hearing this and you might be validating your beliefs by hearing this propaganda. 
which is a concern. It's your echo chamber. It's telling the narrative that you want to hear. But second of all, which is something, you know, I'd like to say this for a positive. Why couldn't we use this kind of energy to actually do something good for the world rather than, mm. you know, elect something, you know. That well, I think what it's bad. done, unfortunately, is the original appeal of social media was that it had some, this unifying thing that it could bring people together on important social mm. issues and political issues and, mm. and, and, and help solve the world's problems by, by uniting people, by harnessing the power of the internet and harnessing the power of these platforms. But then what's happened, unfortunately, is that through this kind of manipulation, mm-hmm. that the, the, the dark side has been revealed, and that is the ability to control people in ways that they did not intend. They didn't put that data up there yeah. in saying, oh, I'm inviting you to uh, hit me with a whole bunch of propaganda and influence me politically. Uh, but unfortunately, that's, that's the sort of outcome that has, has come, and it has damaged the standing and credibility of social media platforms. Just look at the share price of Facebook. It's down significantly. Mm-hmm. There's scandals which are still going on. And it's not just Facebook. Just quoting from this uh, this report that was done at Oxford University's Computational Propaganda Project and Graphica, the network analysis firm, the researchers from that group said, quote, what is clear is that all of the messaging clearly sought to benefit the Republican Party and specifically Donald Trump. Trump is mentioned most in campaigns targeting conservatives and right-wing voters, where the messaging encouraged these groups to support his campaign. The main groups that could challenge Trump uh, were then provided messages that sought to confuse, distract, and ultimately discourage members from voting. Now, they go on to say that um, the, the platforms that were used by the Russians in this disinformation campaign provided a belated and uncoordinated response. And they were quite critical, you know, efforts were made to see the role of YouTube, which is the biggest video platform. It's owned by Google. There were videos and stuff posted there and then, yeah. you know, links shared through social media and stuff. But Google's, you know, Google's apparently submitted information in an especially difficult way for the researchers to handle, providing content uh, such as YouTube videos, but not the related data that would have allowed the full analysis. So all they could do was actually track links to videos from other sites in the hope of better understanding YouTube's role in the Russian effort. Uh, one extra thing I heard is it didn't end when Trump was elected as president. It actually continued on well into the first year and That's right. uh, mm. of, of his uh, presidency. Yep. So the 20 most popular pages generated 39 million likes, 31 million shares, 5.1 million reactions and 3.4 million comments. The Russian campaign reached 126 million people on Facebook and 20 million more people on Instagram. So that's 146 million people on Instagram. So these numbers are very significant. You know, anyone who doubts that this actually had an effect on the outcome of the US election really needs to look at this report and uh, think carefully about exactly. uh, about the effects of social media, albeit, you know, there can be some good, good angles to social media. Unfortunately, there's a dark side as well. Thanks for listening to From the Vault, the best of the Beyond Infinity radio show. For our complete back catalogue, head to beyondinfinity.com.au. You can also engage with us on social media, Beyond Infinity RPPFM on Facebook or Infinity RPP on Twitter. 